Welcome to Cornerstone Church of Parker and our Sunday service webcast, which is connecting you to God's Word anywhere over the internet. We're glad you're joining our webcast today and pray that God will minister to you as we share His good news in Christ Jesus. And now, with a message from God's Word, here's our speaker for today. Thank you for being with us. Um, My name is Mike Jones, and I'm the lead pastor here at Cornerstone. Been that way for about 20 months now. Is that a good thing? Hopefully that's, been a good, hopefully that's been a good thing and not you're like, oh my gosh, when is this guy going to do something different? Um, no, I, I've been truly enjoyed my time here. We're coming up on, on two years uh, at the end of this summer and it's been a privilege. Uh, right now, we have just here in 2019 entered into a, a study that takes us into the New Testament through the gospel accounts and through Acts by the end of next January uh, 2020. And we started out um, in the book of Matthew. And the, if there was any disciple that was truly changed, in my opinion, it's Matthew. Just knowing who he was and, and who he became and how he died, I just am amazed at, at Matthew's life and the work that Jesus did in his life. And so as we've moved through his book, uh, and there's so much that we could potentially study or talk about, I decided to move through the book of Matthew by examining the five major discourses uh, that Jesus shares. Um, And we'll look at the fourth one today, talking about the signs of a truly changed life. More about that in a minute. But first, we we started out learning, uh, how do we start a truly changed life? And we looked at that first major discourse in Matthew chapter 5, commonly called the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' longest recorded sermon. And yet you can read through uh, or verbally read it out loud in like 15 minutes. His longest sermon is like 15, 20 minutes, right? And so in that, he shows us how to start a truly changed life and that it starts with changing our attitude and how we think about ourselves. In Matthew chapter 10, we looked at uh, Jesus' second discourse and he teaches us how to share our truly changed life. Uh, last week we looked in Matthew chapter 13 about the source of a truly changed life and we found that it's God's word. God's word goes inside of us. It works in us as we pray over it, meditate on it. It just changes us in ways that we, are, uh, we can't change ourselves. And that brings us to today, the signs of a truly changed life. And as I started thinking about this, I thought, you know, how would somebody know that they have been truly changed? I mean, when Matthew after he walked with the Lord for a while, how would he know that, man, my life is distinctly different? What indicators uh, would give him hope and confidence that he is different now compared to where he, or what he used to be like? And I thought about that in my own life. You know, how, how do I know that I'm truly changed? I mean, what signs uh, would indicate that I'm distinctly different because of my faith in Christ? Am I the same as I was 25 years ago when I I was 15 years old and I made my own choice. It wasn't my parents' faith, it was my faith. And I decided I wanted to follow Christ and I've been following him ever since. But if someone knew me then or knew me along the way and knew me now, would they say, you know what, you, you're definitely different and here is how. Here's how you're different. What about you? How long have you known the Lord? I'm going on 25. I have my 40th birthday this fr- Saturday. Pray for me. Pray for me. This coming Saturday. This coming Saturday, I'll be 40 years old. 40 years old. I looked in the mirror the other day and I'm like, man, I got some gray hairs up there. 
That's all the more reason to keep my hair long and hide them. Hide those hair. But, you know, if the people who knew you when you first came to know the Lord and they know you now, would they go, you know what? You're different. And they could put their finger on something specific. I mean, they could tell you about an attitude that's different now or an action. You know, you used to do this, but I noticed since you've been a Christian, you don't do this anymore. And I think that's the answer to that question is a very important one for each one of us uh, to find. Because without a definitive answer to that question, we have no expectations regarding the changes that God would make in our life after expressing faith in Christ. We, we have nothing to like aim for or look for and go, okay, I know I'm truly changed when I see this, when my attitude changes, when this action changes. And fortunately for us, Jesus answers this question in his fourth major discourse in Matthew chapter 18. If you're not there, would you turn there with me? Matthew chapter 18. And if you are here today, you, you don't have a Bible with you, but you, you'd like to borrow one, we have a stack here. Mr. Wright would be glad to bring you one. If you don't have a Bible of your own, just keep it. Consider it a gift from Cornerstone Church. Now, usually, you guys know me, I, I hold my Bible in my hand, but I'm trying something different today. I do have the scriptures. They are right here in front of me. And we're going to be reading uh, this as we go. And we'll come to that in just a moment. But if you look at Matthew chapter 18... Verse 1, you're going to see, he says, about that time the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And so like some of these other major discourses found in Matthew, this is a private conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples. This is not a, not a sermon, okay? This is a, a one-on-one conversation, and it actually comes in two phases, okay? It, the first one is found in verses 1 through 21, where I, I imagine him, he's talking to all of his disciples as a group. He's addressing a question or a conflict that they're having about who is the greatest. And so he answers that and talks to that. And then he starts, he turns away, and in verse 22, we see Peter come and talk, pull him off to the side and ask him a follow-up question. So 1 through 21 is kind of all together. 22 through 35 is this, this private, more private conversation with him and Peter kind of following up on this. Now, as I studied this, especially as I got all the way to the end, it dawned on me that Jesus is addressing two major situations in our life okay, that are very important, and they serve as indicators of just how truly changed we really are. Okay, The first is this. When he's talking to all of his disciples in 1 through 21, He's addressing, well, what about when I, what's my response when I am tempted or I actually sin against someone else, okay? How is my response? My response in that instance, whether I, I follow through on that temptation or, or back away and do what it takes to maintain a good example, that says a lot about how truly changed a person is, okay? So that's the first time, when I'm tempted to sin against someone else, to hurt someone else, and over here, in that second part, he addresses, well, what's my response? What's our response when someone sins against us? And both of those are pressure-packed situations, okay? When I'm tempted to sin or cause someone else to sin, or when someone sins against me, creates a breach in my relationship, how I respond, how you respond in those moments says a lot about how changed we truly are. I mean, it's, it's really easy to, to act truly changed when you're by yourself. When you're a monk, 
it's really easy to be truly changed because you never interact with anybody else. I mean, you have long periods of silence where you don't even speak to other people, right? But as soon as you step out into the real world, that's when you start interacting with people and you have times when you're tempted to sin or cause someone to sin or vice versa. And that's really when the nitty-gritty starts. I mean, you guys have heard me talk a little bit here and there about my devotional life, how in the morning I get up. And my favorite thing to do or my routine to do is I go out in the garage because I have four kids and when they're up and moving around and cereal is going and cartoons are on, it's hard to pray, right? So I go out in the garage and I mix in some push-ups and pull-ups while I pray. It just helps me wake up. And so it's really easy in the garage to be, to be a follower of Christ, right? <laughs> How many of you guys love to retreat into your garage and tinker? Anybody else go into the garage and work on stuff? Tools? Yeah, I love to do that. It's like I just put some headphones in and just act. And if someone speaks to me, I just, I don't hear them. I'm moving. <laughs> I might, but I don't let them know that, right? Because I'm tinkering. It's easy to, to, to serve Christ in the garage. It's easy to, to be off by yourself and be truly changed. But there's times where you come in and then like literally in the morning, somebody's screaming, they're already fighting, something's going on. And it's easy to lose everything that you gain from your devotional time. How many parents know what I'm talking about, right? Oh, yes. Okay. And so we're talking about these pressure-packed situations showing us truly what, what type of person we are becoming. And so let's look at this passage together. We're going to find four signs, two for each situation that Jesus says, look, these are the indicators. If you want to know whether you or someone else are, are truly changed, this is what you should look for. So we're just going to read through as we go. Let's start in verses uh, 1 through 4. So he says, About that time the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Remember, when you see the ver that phrase, the kingdom of heaven, you have to think truly changed life. Because someone who is in the kingdom of heaven is now living underneath God's influence, under his jurisdiction, I guess you'd say. And they're allowing him and his words to order their life. Okay, so the phrase kingdom of heaven is referring to being under God's influence. And I'm equating to that to a truly changed life. Verse 2, Jesus called a little child to him and put the child among them. Then he said, I tell you the truth, unless you turn from your sins and become like little children, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Unless you turn from your sins, you will never live under God's influence. So anyone who becomes as humble as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Does anybody write in their Bibles? Anybody write in your Bible or highlight in your Bible? I would highlight um, humble, verse 4. So anyone who becomes as humble and then skip over and highlight, is the greatest. Humble is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So the first sign of a truly changed life is humility. Someone who is truly changed recognizes their need for God. See, Jesus is referencing, he's coming back to the Beatitudes, he's coming back to the very first thing he said in his public ministry. Do you realize the very first recorded words, as far as Matthew is concerned, in his public ministry was, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see God, right? Is that true? Did I quote that right? 
Blessed are the poor in spirit. He's saying the very first thing, if you want to start a truly changed life, then you must recognize that you are poor in spirit. You do not have, I do not have the internal resources to be an excellent husband, to be an excellent father, to be an excellent teacher or pastor or anything good. I don't have it because at my core, I'm just as what Jeremiah says, my heart is deceitfully wicked. And until you recognize that fact about yourself or about ourselves, you're not entering into the kingdom of heaven. You're not coming in and going to be able to live under God's influence. Someone once said, pride must die in you or nothing of heaven can live in you. I love that quote. How many of you like Indiana Jones? I like Indiana Jones. I don't care for the second movie very much if you think it's kind of weird, but I like, I like the other ones. My favorite one is The Last Crusade. I really like The Last Crusade. I'm a big Sean Connery fan. I think that he's amazing. All right. Um, I like his white beard. I'm kind of trying to emulate that a little bit. Um, but that movie, if you know anything about uh, that movie, you know that they're, they're on a quest to find the Holy Grail. And at the very end, he's Indy's coming in, and, and there he has to pass a series of tests to get into the room where the, the grail is kept. And the very first test, you just can't figure it out. Guys are walking in, their heads are coming off. And he's like, what's going on? Well, there's a clue, and it's, it's the breath of God. The first test is the breath of God, and, and only the penitent man will pass. And so as Indy's walking up, he's sweating, he's nervous, he's looking back over his shoulder, wondering what's going to happen here, noticing these decapitated bodies. He's like, what am I going to do? And he keeps repeating to himself, the penitent man will pass, the penitent man will pass, penitent, penitent, humble, humble, kneel. And he kneels, and as soon as he kneels, the blades go right around him, and he misses, and he saves his, you know, he saves his life. And I when I was studying this out, I was drawn to that scene and how it's exactly that same way. And it, there's a lot of truth to that. When you, if you want to come and live under God's influence and experience true change, then the penitent man will pass. You're never going to walk in. I'm never going to walk into God's presence with my held head high. My head held high. <laughs> right? I'm never going to walk in boasting about how awesome I am. I'm never, ever going to do that. If you want to enter in, if I want to enter into God's presence, then we must come on our knees, come with a a, a penitent heart, a, a humility that says, God, I need you. And so the application uh, to, for us today is to remember greatness in God's eyes is born out of humility. Proverbs 3.34 tells us that God mocks the proud. God just laughs at proud people. He laughs at them. He mocks them. But he shows favor to the humble. Proverbs 15, 23 and 18, 12 tell us that humility comes before honor. So if we want to be great in God's eyes, if we want to be great and honored in God's kingdom, then we are going to have to humble ourselves. The very first indicator of a truly changed life is humility. It's that, that change in attitude. The second change, and this applies more towards that situation of like when I'm tempted to sin against someone else, okay? Uh, what, what do I do? Okay, the first thing is this humility of recognizing that, man, I'm not under my influence and it's not just about me, it's about someone else. And so I say this second sign of a truly changed life is an awareness 
an awareness that our faith has an effect on the faith of others, especially the faith of new believers. Would you look in verse 5 with me? Notice that he mentions a little child. Okay? He mentions little child. Go to verse 6. He mentions little ones. Skip to verse 10. He mentions little ones. Verse 14. Again, he mentions little ones. You have to realize that Jesus is speaking to men who have been walking with him for a while. I mean, we're in chapter 18, right? We're in chapter 18. They've been with him for a minute. And so he's speaking to mature believers, I guess you'd say. People who have been walking with the Lord for a while. And he's saying, look at these little ones. These ones who who might not know better. These ones who are new to the faith. I want you to have an awareness that what you do, the choices you make, whether you sin or not sin, they affect them. They affect these people that are new to the faith. Let's read it and then we'll come back and say, look at what Jesus says. And anyone, verse 5, who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf is welcoming me. But if you cause one of these little ones who trust in me to fall into sin, it would be better for you to have a large millstone tied around your neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. That's just one of those verses you just don't forget. What sorrow awaits the world because it tempts people to sin? Temptations are inevitable. It is going to happen. And so long as you and I live on this earth, we are never going to escape temptations. But what sorrow awaits the person who does the tempting? So if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better to enter eternal life with only one hand or one foot than to be thrown into eternal fire with both of your hands and feet. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better to enter eternal life with only one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Beware that you don't look down on any of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels are always in the presence of my heavenly Father. I mean, just a little side note I wrote. Is this verse supporting the existence of guardian angels? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, what will he do? Won't he leave the ninety-nine others on the hills and go out to search for the one that is lost? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he will rejoice over it more than the other 99 that didn't wander away. In the same way, it is not my heavenly Father's will that even one of these little ones should perish. And so we see Jesus, he's speaking to these mature believers, talking to them about those who are new to the faith but are now living under the influence of God whose lives are beginning to change. And he says, first of all, verse 5, welcome them. Welcome them. Don't look down on them, that's verse 10. Welcome them. He says, avoid tempting them to act outside of God's divine influence. This is verses 6 through 9. He says, do what it takes, essentially, to keep yourself in check. Because what you do to sin or not sin, it is going to affect someone else. And if you do something, if I do something that causes one of these people who are new to the faith to fall away, you might as well throw a millstone around your neck and drown yourself. Because God takes that very, very seriously. I think he's saying this story for emphasis. Keep that in mind. Nobody go out and drown yourself today. Okay? He says, lastly, in verse 11 through 14, go look for them when they're lost. How many new believers come in, they hit a struggle, and they start walking away, and none of us go get them? None of us go and say, how you doing, man? I I know you made that decision to follow Christ. What's going on? How can I help you? He's saying, go 
Look for them. This is the Father's heart. These are signs that you are living in the kingdom of heaven under God's influence, that your life is truly changing. And so the application for us today is God wants you to value new believers and to recognize that you are an example to them. One of the greatest changes that we experience when we go from like 18 into more established adulthood, especially when we become a parent, is we realize that now we're an example to others and that someone's watching us. Man, how many stories, I can't tell you how many dads especially, you know, they were kind of reckless and, and like unnecessarily adventurous, like more adventurous than what you normally should be, right? As soon as they have a child, it's like all that stops. All that stops. They just tell me, you know, I, I got responsibilities, you know? Even it's like you go to play pickup basketball with them and they're like, you know, you bump them a little too hard. And like, man, I got to go to work tomorrow, you know, don't, don't foul me too hard, you know? You know what I'm talking about? Don't, don't bump me like that. I'm like, man, I just barely touched you, you know? So they get really, really aware, right? And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. We've got to, the sign of a truly changed life of a maturing believer is that they become aware that what I do is gonna affect other people. So we need to watch ourselves. I know as parents, um, you know, <laughs> One of the worst things that happens, embarrassing things, is when our children start to pick up on our bad habits. You know what I'm talking about? Listen, to, I, I just Googled this. Here's some bad habits that preschoolers in particular pick up from their parents. Nail biting, picking their nose, coughing, sneezing without covering the mouth, eating food picked from the floor, licking the fingers while eating, slurping while drinking, Interrupting conversations and speaking extra loud in public places. Yeah. Bad habits that preteens and teens may pick up from their parents, including smoking, drinking, rash driving, foul language, not respecting rules and laws, gossiping, and backbiting. I know um, I'm a pretty aggressive driver. Um, and uh, not unsafe, just aggressive. I like to get places, you know. And uh, my... I'd be like, somebody's driving too slow. And I'd be like, come on, turn, you know, turn, go. And, and now, I, you know, I kind of check myself because I'm bringing my kids to school. And then now my four-year-old is hollering from the back, come on, you know, <laughs> let's go. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah, okay. So coming back to the context that Jesus is, is talking about here between mature and new believers I just have to ask us, what bad habits are new believers learning from us? If we're truly changed, then we're going to have an increased awareness of how our mode of living is affecting them, right? And so with that, I want to uh, give you a, a chance to stand and stretch and converse for a second. Here's the question for you, and the sound guys are going to give us a little music in the background for us here. What is one change that God has made in your life in the last year or two? What would you consider is the, like one of the most significant changes God has made in you in the last year or so, okay? So that's the, one of the questions. The other question is, what change would you really like to see God make in your life this year? What are you praying about, okay? So I want you to stand, stand up on your feet. You're gonna stretch out. Ugh. Find somebody and share the answer to one of those questions, okay? You've got three minutes. What is one change 
10 seconds, 10 seconds to wrap those conversations, please. 10 seconds to wrap those conversations. All right. Okay. So we're talking about the signs of a truly changed life. What indicators show that our life has been truly changed? It first starts with an attitude. It's humility. That has a whole lot to do with how we interact towards other people. The second one is an awareness that my faith affects others. Okay, and so I have to check myself. I have to make sure that I'm, I'm walking with the Lord because I know that someone else is watching me and I'd hate for them to pick up on my bad habits. The second is starting in verse uh, 22, and this has to do with more where um, Peter's, actually we're not quite to that point, but it's now it's shifting gears to where how do, what, if, what happens when someone sins against me? How should I respond? Because in that pressure-packed situation, that also shows a couple of indicators of whether or not I'm truly changed. So let's go uh, to verse 15. And you can see the shift right away. Look at verse 15. If another believer sins against you, okay? So that's why I said there's a shift in this conversation. The first part was all about, listen, if you look at verse 6, if you cause one of these little ones to fall into sin, there's me going that way. Come back to verse 15, if another believer sins against you. So you can see where I'm getting this from. So the third sign of a truly changed life is a willingness to work through conflict constructively. A willingness to work through conflict constructively. See, you know, conflict resolution in the world usually involves winners and losers, right? It's a, a very competitive conflict uh, resolution type situation. Uh, I win, you lose, or vice versa. And it's really about proving yourself right. And that's, that's a pride thing. I care more about being right than I do about having right relationships. Have you ever been in a situation like that? Arguing with a person who is so desperately wants to be right that they don't even care whether or not the, the relationship remains broken. That's the world's way of working through uh, a conflict, right? But in the kingdom of heaven, conflict resolution looks differently, it, especially between believers. It's all about finding a solution that allows both people to win as much and as often as possible. And so Jesus goes on in, here, in these verses here. Let's read them. And he tells us how to constructively work through conflict with another believer, especially when they sin against us. He says in verse 15, if another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If another person listens and confesses it, you've won that person back. Notice the goal is restoration. I, it's about a right relationship. It's not about being right. It's winning that person, person back. But if you're unsuccessful... Verse 16, take one or two others with you and go back again so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. If the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church, meaning like church elders, church leaders, people who are your local experts in how God says relationships should function. Bring it to them. Let them, talk, let them hear the story and kind of figure out based on what God says, you know, kind of who's in the right, who's in the wrong, and what you need to do to move forward. Then he says, then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. Treat them as someone who is not 
living in the kingdom of heaven, someone who's not under God's influence, someone who's not, uh, uh, who doesn't really care what God thinks. Treat them that way, he says. I tell you the truth, whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven, and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. I tell you this, if two of you agree here on earth concerning anything you ask, my Father in heaven will do it for you, for where two or three gather together as my followers, I am there among you. And so Jesus says to work through uh, conflict constructively with another believer, Verse 15, go to them privately. Verse 2, uh, or the second, is take one or two others with you to uh, try to work it out. If that doesn't work, then bring it to church leadership. Help See if they, they can help you guys work it out. So the application for this is simple. As much as depends on you, live peaceably with everyone. Try to work things out. And that's basically what Paul says in Romans 12, 17. Live peaceably with everyone as much as it depends on you. Do your part. But then Jesus says in verse 17 here in Matthew chapter uh, 18, Jesus recognizes the fact that sometimes conflicts end bitterly. They end unproductively. You can't always work it out. Why? Because it takes two to tango, right? It takes two. You could be doing your part, but you cannot make the other person do theirs. You cannot make someone work it out. And so Jesus says, listen, if they won't even listen to church leadership, then you just got to let them go. You got to let them go. Even if they profess to be a Christian, they're not practicing Christianity. So you need to let them go. Basically, don't let their unrighteousness hinder you from moving forward. Keep in mind, righteousness is all about right relationships, right relationships with God, right relationships with others. So unrighteousness is somebody who they don't really care. They don't care if they're right with God. They don't care if they're right with you. They'd rather be right in their own eyes, at least. I think a a really good Old Testament example of this is David and Saul. Um, David, King David, before he became king, he tried to work through a conflict with Saul. Saul was very jealous of, of him and, and the things that he was accomplishing. And, and David would try to work it out with him. Saul didn't want anything to do with it. Instead, he tried to kill David repeatedly, several times, tried to kill him. And so eventually, David had to let that relationship go for his own safety and his own well-being, as well as the well-being of his family and the men he was responsible for. He did everything in his power to, to resolve it. And, and he just finally had to come to a place where I I can't do this anymore. And he moved away. He went and lived with the Philistines for a minute, right? Until Saul passed away. You know what? You you may need to let someone go. You might be trying to work through a conflict and it's actually the stress and just the whole situation is going to put you under. You may need to let someone go for a minute for your own well-being or for the well-being of your family and those who are you're responsible for. That is essentially what Christ is, is saying here. But what do you do if they come back and ask forgiveness? That's the second, or excuse me, that's the, the fourth indicator of a truly changed life. Your response in that moment. And that's essentially what Peter asks him. Remember, at the beginning, I said he's having this larger conversations with the disciples. But at some point here in verse uh, 
21, he steps aside and Peter comes and asks him a private conversation like a follow-up. Look at it with me. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? That someone is the same person that he mentions in, in verse 15. That other believer. Peter says seven times, thinking he's being generous. And Jesus says in 22, no, not seven times, 70 times seven, as if just unending, repeatedly, on and on, continue to forgive him. And so um, Jesus continues to elaborate on that in in a story that we'll look at in a minute. But the fourth sign of a truly changed life is a willingness to forgive. A willingness to forgive Let's look at that story that, that Jesus tells to answer why. Why continue to forgive someone? Therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with his servants who had borrowed money from him. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. He couldn't pay, so his master, the king, ordered that he be sold along with his wife, his children, and everything he owned to pay the debt. But the man fell down before his master and begged, him, please be patient with me, I will pay it all. Then his master was filled with pity for him and he released him and forgave his debt. But when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. He grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. His fellow servant fell down and begged for a little more time. Be patient with me and I will pay it, he pleaded, verse 30. But his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. When some, other, uh, some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. And they went to the king and told him everything that had happened. And then the king called in the man he had forgiven and said, You evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. Verse 35. Jesus says, that's what my heavenly Father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. You know that phrase, brothers and sisters, he's referring again to that believer that sinned against you in verse 15. The one that you went to and you tried to work it out and they would have nothing with it. And so you let them go, some time passes and they come back and they have a soft heart now. God is starting to work on their lives. They come back in humility. They come back and say they're sorry. And Jesus is saying at that moment, you will know if you are truly changed. I will know if I am truly changed because a truly changed life will be willing to forgive in light of all that God has forgiven you and I, in light of not just one time, but several times. How many of you are so thankful that it's not a one-time forgiveness? Man, I'm so dumb sometimes. How many of you know that you can be dumb sometimes? Lord, you just come back to God and you're like, Lord, I don't know what I was thinking. I am so sorry. And you come back and you come back and the Lord forgives you each and every time. And he's saying, listen, you need to have that same attitude. If you're going to live under God's influence, you will display his attitudes. And in that pressure-packed situation, when you'd rather hold a grudge, you will find out whether or not you are truly changed. Did you know that 
Jesus here, I want you to, if you have a highlighter again, look at verse 35 and he says, if you refuse, if you refuse. He's not talking, guys, he's not talking about someone who's hurt and needs a couple days or a couple weeks to process through it and like come to a place of forgiveness, okay? Be, Jesus is very reasonable. The more I study his life and his teachings, he's extremely reasonable. He understands. It takes a minute, right? It's not like you were hurt and then two seconds later you're forgiving. There's, there's some process to that. He's talking about the person that is absolutely, no matter what, no matter how long a time between the incident and the person coming to ask forgiveness, you're not going to forgive them, okay? That, he's talking about those those people, harboring it, holding that grudge indefinitely is what he's referring to. In my study, uh, I've came across an article from John Hopkins University about the effects of unforgiveness, physical effects. Um, chronic anger, you know, every time we, we think of, a, of that incident and we get worked up again, it's like we relive it over and over, it results in changes in our heart rate, blood pressure, immune response. And those changes, quoting from the article, can increase the risk of de- uh, depression, heart attack, heart disease, diabetes, cholesterol, can lead to insomnia, increased anxiety, and stress. However, the article says, forgiveness calms stress levels and leads to improved health. Guys, you have three parts body, soul, and spirit, and all three of them are related. And when you're carrying around a a relational slash spiritual issue like unforgiveness, it will affect you in other ways. It will consume your mind. It will consume your emotions. It will affect you in your physical body and put you down. And so Jesus is saying to us, essentially, let that stuff go. God doesn't want you living like that. And if they come back and ask for forgiveness, forgive them. Emulate the Father's heart, the King's heart in the story. Forgive them. Release that stress. Here's the application for us. Remember that hurting people hurt people. And some people don't know what they're doing. Jesus taught us this when he was hanging on the cross. He said, Father, forgive them. They, what? They don't know what they're doing. Think about the people who crucified them, crucified him. These people, these Jews, are living under oppression. They're living under Roman rule. It wasn't an easy life. They were hurting, and they were hurting others as a result. This doesn't excuse their behavior. It doesn't excuse it. It just gives us a perspective of why, about why they, weighed, why they were the, the way they were. And the person who hurt you, that person, that believer that sinned against you, understand that at some point, they were probably hurt. And so hurting people hurt others, and so now you're hurt, and you're hurting, and you're going to hurt others, and it just keeps going. And Jesus is saying, stop the cycle. Stop it. You can't take care of them, but you can take care of you. So forgive them when they ask for it and put an end to that cycle of hurting and hurting and hurting and hurting all the way down the line. It's like 
Forgiveness is like Roundup. Anybody here like working in the lawn? I love working in my lawn. I do. I like working in my lawn, and I hate weeds. I hate weeds. I kill them. I kill them on the sidewalks. I kill them on other people's sidewalks, wherever I see them stupid things. I just kill them, right? And so you have Roundup, and you spray them. I spray them a little extra just to make sure it gets them good, you know? And forgiveness is just like that. You know, that bitterness and that hurt that we have in our heart from people sinning against us, it's like weeds. It just spreads, affects every aspect of our life, even our physical health. And when we forgive, it's like spraying them all with Roundup. Dries it up right from the roots and it keeps it from spreading into someone someone else's yard, I guess you'd say, someone else's life, right? Jesus gave us four, four indicators of a truly changed life. Two from each pressure pack situation. One, when I'm tempted to sin against others and when someone sins against me. Those four include walking in humility, act, having an awareness that my faith affects others, trying to work through conflict constructively, and lastly, a willingness to forgive when we've been hurt. When you and I see those attributes, those characteristics in our lives, then we can say, yes, I have been truly changed. If you don't see those aspects in your life, then I just gave you something to pray about. I just gave you something to pray about this week, to say, Lord, produce that in my heart. Would you pray with me this morning? I just want you to... Just close your eyes for just a second. I want you to reflect on what you've heard this morning. Jesus' words to his disciples. And I want you to think, how truly changed am I? Am I a whole lot different than I was when I first came to faith? Or if you haven't come to know the Lord yet, do you want to know him? And if that's the case, I want you to come find me after this service so we can just share. I think the most effective way is just to talk, talk it out over coffee or something. But if you're a follower of Christ and you're looking at the changes God's made in your life, do you see humility among that list? Do you see an awareness of how your faith affects others? How are you working through conflict with your wife or with your kids or at work? Is it constructively or are you just trying to win? Are you willing to forgive someone who's hurt you? Father, I just come before you on behalf of this congregation, myself included, and we pray today, Lord, that you would produce these things in our life to ever-increasing amounts. Lord, that we would become more like Christ, that your influence would spread all throughout our lives, that we would see these indicators as well as others. Lord, that we are just walking with you, that others would see these things in us, God, that they would even compliment us or bring it up, that we would take courage knowing that you are indeed working in our lives. We thank you so much for your word. We thank you for Jesus and just how reasonable he is, and, but yeah, how practical he is in teaching us about these situations. 
I pray a blessing over every person here today. Would you just stand with me today? And if you're willing, just raise your hands. Let me pronounce a blessing over your life, over your family today as you go. Father God, I just pray a blessing over every single person that is here, over their family, over their work. Lord, over every uh, obstacle that they face this week, I pray that you would make a way where there is no way, that they would end this week looking back in amazement at how you worked on their behalf. Father, I pray that you would go before each and every one of them, that you would lead them in victory today and Monday and Tuesday. Lord, that you would just walk with them, make those crooked places straight in their lives. Come and surround them with your presence. Let them know that you are with them. In Jesus' mighty name. Everyone said, amen. Amen. Would you give somebody a handshake or a high five on your way out? We thank you for listening to this Sunday service webcast from Cornerstone Church of Parker in Parker, Colorado. We hope that his truth has enriched your life and inspires you to greater works in God's kingdom. We invite you to worship with us in our Sunday morning service or join in our other ministry events posted on cornerstonechurchofparker.org. Cornerstone Church, built on the firm foundation of Jesus Christ and connecting people to God, each other, and to our world.